0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, I told you it was coming. Uh, we have the full case for preterism coming today to Common Sense Christianity for fulfilled eschatology. If you haven't heard of it, I talked about it, did a six or seven part series on it. And I'm going to do this in the best detail I can. And once again, I don't have answers for everything, but this is a general overview, and hopefully, it will convince you that the whole Bible has been fulfilled according to scripture and literal history uh it has been objected to me and raised to my attention that the church fathers disagreed with us but for me i do not care what the church fathers have to say their opinions are just as genuine as mine i care what the apostles and christ jesus has had to say on the topic i will be trying to go quickly to condense it down to keep your attention span Going. So, the first thing we will address is what preterism is. For those of you who are new here, I'm Ethan Foster, your host. You can email me with any questions at Common Sense Christianity Podcast at gmail.com. Another great resource for this is Heart of the Matter, the ministry I'm directly affiliated with. Another great guy is Don Preston, Don K. Preston. He is fantastic and will totally change your mind on the subject of eschatology, rivalnations.org, which many of the resources I am quoting from or coming from today another fantastic website I don't know if it's full prejudice it sounds partial preterist to me but it may it may be full preterist. but besides that it has great great resources and full support from the scriptures and rival nations.org in fact I've never seen such a good website or an organization in terms of biblical support and just breaking down verses in the Bible so well to talk about different topics. The first part comes from the Gospel Coalition, which is a futurist organization. It's mainstream evangelical Christianity, at least to my knowledge. I haven't done any in-depth research of it, but I do believe that it is mainstream Christianity. It quotes a couple of Bible verses and then has some commentary on it, which I will read to you. Uh, it says, The prisoners often ground their, biblical, their view in biblical passages, such as the following, Matthew 10, 23. I say to you, You will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Again, that's Matthew 10, 23. Matthew 16, 28. Truly I say to you, there is some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That is Matthew 16, 28. Matthew 24, 34 says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place luke 9 27 i tell you truly there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of god these are the words of christ jesus and these uh, there is many more to support this i read revelation 1 7 which says these this is written to the churches blah 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 blah, the things that must soon take place i may read it later if i have the energy enough to lift up my giant bible and give it to you uh it continues on to say predestined further support in the familiar biblical extortions to watch for the soon coming of christ the consistent eschatology of lutheran theologian albert schweitzer let's hope i said that right Argued that the intimate eschatological expectations of jesus turned out to be mistaken so ladies and gentlemen our leading theologians within history and I've said quotes in the past of C.S. Lewis saying this, have said Jesus has been wrong. Jesus, God incarnate, is wrong. If he is wrong about something as important as him coming back and the final judgment, then why would we trust him on anything? Anything outside of that? Forget the church fathers. Forget what they say. Look at the words of Jesus. He says very clearly when he's coming back. Within a 40-year time frame, that is a biblical generation. So we have 40 years from the 30s AD for these things to take place. If they have not taken place, then Jesus was a liar or mistaken, which would be, in my mind, even worse. Because if you're God and you are trying to convince people that you are God incarnate the word made flesh. Uh and you can't even get back uh, get a prophecy right. Then why should we you believe why should we believe you? In fact this leads to a lot of atheism ladies and gentlemen. Our our mistakes on eschatology. They bring it up all the time. Well Jesus said he's coming back this time. And Christians BS it. They BS around it. Oh Matthew 24 only had to do with the judgment of Jerusalem and not the end times, which would be what the partial preterists would say. But then you would have to deal with Revelation, which deals with the actual end times. It says these things must soon take place. This is written to seven specific churches that existed at that time. Not to us today, to seven specific churches. And I'm going to read its evaluation and response whatever disagreements in detail they may have among them. Most readers of biblical prophecy since the beginning of the church have understood it to lend to the expectation uh, uh, of a final climactic and breaking of God and world history, establishing a recognizably new world order marked by a physical resurrection, resurrection and the personal bodily presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. The vast majority of Christians find the full preterist interpretation of biblical prophecy is surprising for many reasons. That we can only highlight here. Um, so look at this. Its argument. Is not on the Bible. It's on the interpretation of the Bible. It just read. Scriptures from the full preterist view. In everybody's Bible. That you can easily find. It doesn't declare a justification for them. It just says well. The. Most church fathers haven't interpreted it that way. Which, again, their interpretations are irrelevant. I'm deciding whether to read this, but I think I should give the Gospel Coalition a chance to respond to this. The very good and blessed creation of Genesis 1-2 has now fallen under divine judgment. Genesis 3. The subsequent biblical writers anticipated restoration of the created order and reversal of the curse in the new heaven and the new earth even if the many back to eden passages in the prophets are understood in symbolic terms which is by no means certain other related prophecies seem unmistakably clear Uh, for example paul affirms that in the present order subjective to futility and marked by groaning and fallenness and bondage and corruption will experience a recognizable reversal at the resurrection of the just. Just as human sin had consequences that affected the creative order, so also the created order will be caught up in final human redemption and be restored. Peter also directs us to expect that the day of cosmic renewal. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed since all these things are thus to be dissolved what sort of people are you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming day of god because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and heavenly bodies will melt as a burn but according to his promise we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth and righteousness dwells second peter 3:10 through 13 so okay Let's take what the full thing that Peter says. Peter says we're already in the last days. Them, to them. We ignore the fact that every single biblical book is written to people living then, not to us. Peter is writing letters. What are letters meant for? They are meant to deliver a message to an individual, not to us today but to the churches that existed at that time. So we ignore them. So when Peter is writing this, and many of it I would argue is poetic and hyperbole and different ways of understanding it, when he is writing to them, he is saying this is what's going to happen to you. You are going to experience this. But we ignore that. We, we just read it and we're like, oh, he must be speaking to us today, 2,000 years later, when Jesus Christ himself said he was coming back in a generation. You see that? It is man's interpretation in this, not the Bible's. History will not just end, it continues on to say, much less that just continue as it is in its fallenness. It will reach its intended goal and witness the restoration of all things. God does not intend to leave creation or humanity in its fallen connection condition his blessed purpose for creation will yet be realized this prospect is pervasive in biblical prophecy and we will get to all that later at least I hope so in the next articles I'm tired of reading that one and this is uh where we get into the fun part after all the objections I'm going to build my case uh for Jesus already coming back rivalnations.org, we're reading from there. Jesus has already come, question mark, it reads. Most Christians would argue that Jesus hasn't returned yet. Maybe Jesus was wrong. C.S. Lewis certainly thought so. I told you guys we would get to this quote. I've read it before and I will read it again because the greatest Christian intellectual mind cannot give you a explanation for this. The modern day apologist, one of the greatest. C.S. Lewis heralded as the author of mere Christianity, the guy that talked about the moral compass and how a man doesn't know whether a line is crooked if he doesn't have any idea of a straight line—that guy, the guy that absolutely annihilates atheism—well, he cannot annihilate this. What the Bible says, the the apoc- apocalyptic beliefs. the first christians have been proved to be false it is clear from the new testament that they all expected the second coming in their own lifetime and worse still they had a reason and one you will find very embarrassing their master had told them so they shared and indeed created their delusion he in so many words this generation shall not pass till all these things be done and he was wrong he certainly knew no more about the end of the, of the world than anyone else. It is certainly the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, did not know the hour of his return and deluded the first century Christians who believe that. Those of you that accuse me of heresy and being an occult, is this not any different? What C.S. Lewis said here, And what Christians and dispensationalists believe today is it not heresy to proclaim that our Lord is wrong and has been wrong and deluded us? Is that not wrong? Is that not heresy? Is that not disgraceful to the very faith of which we proclaim? I choose to go by the scripture. I don't care what tradition says. I advise I can read. And what I read is very clear from the Bible. Jesus was coming back soon. The article continues to say Lewis's words are blunt, but honest. Yeah, we'll give him that. He said what most Christians say without saying when they choose to ignore that Jesus and the writers of the new Testament claim. But Jesus was correct about the fall of Jerusalem, and thus the end of the Jewish age. So what if he was also correct about his return? Historians have some interesting things to say about it. Several Jewish, Greek, and Roman historians describe how the siege of Jerusalem, the event that coincides when Jesus said he would return, a tremendous figure was seen in the clouds along with the armies of angels. And ladies and gentlemen, I cannot pronounce very many of these names, so I will try my best. Uh, Pesudu. Hey, you, hey, hey, you we'll pretend that never happened a certain figure appeared of tremendous size which many saw just as the books of the Jews have been disclosed and before the setting of the sun, there were ser- suddenly seen in the clouds chariots and armed battle arrays by which the cities of all Judea and its territories were invaded um as of Caesarea we'll say it like that A phantom appeared in incredible size, and what will be related would have seemed a fairy tale and not been told by those who saw it, and have been attended by suffering worthy of the portent. But before sunset, there appeared in the air over the whole country chariots and armed troops coursing through the clouds and surrounding the cities. Flavius Josephus, chariots and troops of soldiers and their armor were seen running about among the clouds and surrounding of the cities uh gaze uh uh tacitus there had been many hoists joining the battle of the skies fiery gleams of arms the temple illuminated by sudden radiance from the clouds and the final one uh suffer uh josephan now it happened after this that there was seen over the holy of holies from uh, above for the entire night and the outline of a man's face the like of whose beauty had never been seen in all the land, and his appearance was very awesome. Moreover, in those days, we're seeing chariots of fire and horsemen, a great force flying across the sky near to the ground, coming against Jerusalem and all the land of Judea, all them horses of fire and riders of fire. So who are you going to take? The Bible and literal history of five different sources, non-Christian sources, that say essentially the same thing, that coincides with the Bible. Are you going to take them, or are you going to take the futurist view that is based nothing on misunderstanding of Jewish hyperbole and in interpretation? The article continues on to say, Jesus said that his first century his, uh, 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 contemporaries. I, forgot, I totally just had a, a brain fart right there. Forgive me. We'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Matthew 26, 64. Uh, Paul said, Jesus will be revealed from heaven and blazing fire in his powerful angels. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7. These historians, most of which were not Christians, seem to corroborate what Jesus and the apostles claim. There is much more historical evidence that shows how everything Jesus pre- predicted uh, came to pass which is covered in another article which i believe we will read i'll click on the link and make sure uh yeah we're already gonna read this one which will be exciting so what are we waiting for the article asks, and this to me is very interesting it is a question that i was struggling with whenever the idea was first posed to me that jesus came back in 70 ad what do we as christians have to live for What is our purpose in life? Isaiah 9-6, I believe it is, which I will attempt to pull up really quickly so I don't get the verse wrong. Um, It speaks of the Messiah. It's a very famous passage, and it's a very beautiful one, in fact. Uh, I'm going to attempt to pull it up as quickly as I can. My dog is not helping me right now. He's begging me to pet him. And he doesn't realize I'm in the middle of something important. Huh man. Okay, so Isaiah nine uh, six. Then, then one of the uh, sherpas. Oh, that that's uh, chapter six. Oh my gosh, I, I'm I'm all sorts of crazy right now. Uh, forgive me. Okay. Uh, for, un, for a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government is on his shoulder, and his name is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. There is no end to the increase of his government in peace on the throne of David and on his kingdom to order it and to sustain it with justice, with righteousness. From now and forever the zeal of Jehovah and of hosts will do this. This is the interlinear literal translation. So the important aspect of what I'm trying to get you guys to realize is there is no end to the increase of his government, the increase of the populace that enters his government. So therefore, the acceptance of people into the kingdom of God has no end from Isaiah 9-6. Well, Isaiah 9-7, I believe that was, actually. So that is very interesting. So my described purpose... For us today as Christians would be this, the continuation, the growing of the spiritual kingdom of God. And if my episode ends, it's because my dog is on my desk right now and we will try to continue without him. Um, so the article continues to say, if Jesus, the apostles and historians were correct, we don't need to wait for Jesus. So then what are we waiting for? The Apostle Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans what we are all waiting for. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory the children of God. Romans 8, 19-21. And Romans, I feel, is like an underrated book of the Bible. It's truly a beautiful book, especially Romans 6 and 7, probably my favorite chapters when talking about grace. But this is truly beautiful what Paul is speaking of here, being brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. We are free, ladies and gentlemen, based on what God has done and ending the old covenant with Jerusalem and giving us the new covenant covenant with Christ Jesus. According to Paul, all of creation is waiting on God's people. It is Jesus through his body, his followers participating in God's kingdom that will liberate creation and bring it into freedom and glory. This has been God's plan all along to transform us into the image of Christ so we can transform the pagan nations to, to the world into the kingdom of God. Um, and it cites Revelation eleven fifteen. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven, which said the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. The article asked the question, how do we do this? Stay away from the microphone, Ned. <laughs> uh, Paul tells us that it is through our faithful suffering that God's glory is revealed in us, which in turn will liberate creation. Jesus said that the world would never be as bad as it was right before his second coming. And this indeed has been the case. Uh, AD 70 saw the worst kind that humankind had to offer. But the world has been slowly getting better ever since God's kingdom expands. We are not waiting for Jesus to return. He already has. He lives inside his followers and cites several scriptures. Um, Jesus tells us that he left with the goal of returning to dwell inside his followers. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you that I am going there to place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the place where I am going, Thomas uh said to him, Lord, we do not we don't know where you are going. So how can we know that we way? Jesus answered him, I am the way truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 2-6. Jesus clearly says that he would leave, but then return to take him his people to his Father's house. Jesus only used the term, my Father's house, in reference to the temple. Jesus said that anyone who obeys his teachings will receive the love of the Father, and will come and make their home with them. If you obey Christ's teachings, he and the Father will make their home with you. They're home inside of you. This is why, all over in the New Testament, followers of Jesus are called the temple of God. It goes on to talk about Christ within. We will not go into that. We are simply making the case for full preterism. Uh, before I get to the two beasts, I want to find the uh, talk about the Great Tribulation, which we have discussed before. Uh, the scriptural. Uh, backing in the main scripture for it. I believe there is a a bunch of it in Revelation 2. But Matthew 24 is very important for when talking about eschatology. Matthew 24, 16 through 20 says, then let all those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down and take anything out of their house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight, will not take place in the winter or in the Sabbath. So, a lot of difficult language here to understand. Jesus was giving those who would listen a special advance warning. For some reason, this uh, has been sometimes used to teach uh, the belief in something called the the rapture. The belief of the person of the website is that the rapture is not biblical I don't know about that. I haven't researched it in depth enough to give a proper opinion on it. So, When will the tribulation happen? This is a very important distinction between dispensationalism and partial preterism. The partial preterist believes the great tribulation occurred in 70 AD, which most Christian scholars would agree with, including people like Jeff Derman and Jason Wallace. They believe in partial preterism. The dispensationalist, which is completely unbiblical and is a completely new view, they think that none of it has been fulfilled. None of Matthew 24 has been fulfilled, and that the great tribulation we are still waiting for, which I would absolutely disagree with, uh, for obvious reasons. The disciples asked Jesus when the tribulation will be. Um, well, actually, they don't, the article says they asked Jesus a different question. Let's take a look and how this starts the whole conversation. So, this is coming from Mark 13. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of the disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite uh, the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign That they are about to be fulfilled that again that is mark 13 1-4 the significance of the temple cannot be underrated uh uh, understated i should say it was the place where heaven and earth met earth and where god's spirit dwelt with his people but by the time of jesus the spirit of god had already left the temple matthew 23 38 nlt version no longer could the spirit dwell in the physical building but soon directly in his people in mark and luke the disciples only asked for the signs of the destruction of the temple what causes some confusion is that their parallel account in matthew they also ask when will this happen what will be the sign of your of your coming in the end of the age since matthew I, matthew's audience was primarily jewish they would link the destruction of the temple with the end of the jewish age and the coming of God's judgment. So in all three accounts there are all asking only one question, when would the temple be destroyed? The tribulation already happened. This is quite clear through history in the Bible. The great tribulation as described by Jesus is not a seven year global tribulation that many American Christians have been taught. And with that, we will go to the break because I have a 30 minute time limit for each segment. We will see here really quickly, this is common sense Christianity. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of Common Sense Christianity. Remember to test all things. Test me by the scriptures and the scriptures alone, guided by the Holy Spirit. Um, Be sure to check out our, our, our ministry affiliate, Heart of the Matter, and check mychurch.org. A lot of good stuff there. Remember to always stay in prayer, and sh- please share this podcast so we can continue to grow as a ministry. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of the episode. All right, we're back to continue our discussion on the Great Tribulation already happening. So, many American Christians have been ta- uh, taught that the Great Tribulation is going to be a seven year global tribulation, that uh, and that, that is in the future. Uh, and it comes from Matthew, uh, not Matthew, nah, nah, Daniel 9 24 through 27. And it's a very complicated verse, so I don't think it's going to be helpful reading it. I encourage you to read it yourselves. The tribulation was the destruction of Jerusalem, and it already happened in 70 AD. While Jesus doesn't tell us exactly when the tribulation would happen, he does give us a general sense. Jesus makes it emphatically clear that the tribulation would happen within 40 years. He says this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened, Matthew 24, 34. Jesus made this statement to his disciples who were alive and present with him at that time they were the primary audience jesus was addressing He he's telling his disciples and their generation will be alive to see this remember this is a private conversation between jesus peter james john and andrew everything described in matthew 24 mark 13 and luke 21 has already happened because it happened during the time of the disciples thankfully this is very good news because of what jesus says after describing this period of tribulation matthew 24 21 for Then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and will never be equaled again. Since Jesus claimed that things will never be as horrible as they were. It means that the worst this world has seen has already happened. We don't have to anticipate things getting worse. We are left with a promise that uh, the best is yet to come. Throughout church history, most Christians believe the Great Tribulation had already happened. It was a horrible event that was well documented by first century historians. Still not convinced? Keep reading and see how everything Jesus prophesied came to pass between the year 66 through 70 AD. So what are the signs that the Bible is speaking of? Um, Luke 21, 5 through 7 says, Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what? Uh, you see here, the time will come when no, when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when would these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? Uh, Luke 21, 5 through 7. Again, if you want to check that out. Jesus names 10 signs signaling the tribulation and the destruction of Jerusalem, the end of the Jewish age. False messiahs and false prophets. Uh, I don't even have to cite the verses for you because you already know that he did predict that. Many false messiahs and prophets came after Jesus. Just one year after Jesus ascended, someone would have been bold, uh, would have the boldness to claim that he was a messiah whom Moses prophesied. His great name was Uh, uh His d- disciple Simon Magus, deluded multitudes into a belief that he himself was the great power of God. Thedius Felix Albinus, Simon bar Gioria, Judas and many more claim to be a Messiah or a prophet. And it says uh, several verses. Again, I will I will link these articles in the link in the description so you can read them yourselves. Uh, the second prophecy, wars and rumors of wars, nation rising against nation. This one is also interesting. So in your history class, and I'm just uh, speculating right here before I read the article, uh, you learn about this time in history uh in your world history class called the Pax Romana it was a time where Rome was at its peak it was at its peak in development and peace and Rome's largest time and best time so this is a period that Jesus was born into and this is important to note here and what we're about to get into about wars and rumors of wars, because it makes Jesus, Jesus' claim during a peaceful time even that more significant. Because if wars were happening at that time when Jesus was saying that, it wouldn't mean much as a sign. So Jesus declared wars and rumors of wars during the Pax Romana. This is what the article is saying, the Roman peace, which is the only time in history when war had essentially ceased because the empire had conquered all of its enemies. This was like predicting snow in the storm summer. At any other time in history, wars would have been a poor sign of times because wars were always happening. But Jesus was right. Extreme wars of wars were about to happen. About three years after the death of Christ, a war broke out between Herod and Ar, 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 Aratus, king of Arabia, Petraria, in which the army of the former was cut off. Seven years later, the Roman emperor uh, Cal, in ordered his st- statue to be placed in the Temple of Jerusalem. The whole nation was so alarmed by their mere rumors of war that they neglected to even till their lands. The Gr- Shut up, Ned. Don't, don't complain. I'm in the middle of something important, buddy. Uh, sorry, audience. Uh, the Greeks and Syrians rose against the Jews in the area of Babylon, killing more than 50,000. Four years later, a Roman soldier showed disrespect in the Temple area by causing a violent op- uprising of the Jews. Uh, 10,000 Jews were killed. Israel fought the, Samarit, uh, the Samaritans at Caesarea and they fought, fought uh, the Syrians, killing 20,000 Jews. Wars broke out in Damascus, Tyre, uh, Ascalon, Gadara, uh, the names that I can't pronounce. In Alexandria, Jews rose up among the, against the Romans and 50,000 died. And you get the point. Within the span of 18 months, Rome went through four different emperors from the time Jesus prophesied 30 AD to when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. There was more war than the Jewish world had ever seen. Point number three, well, prophecy number three, famines and pestilences. In the book of Acts, the prophet Agabus foretold that the massive famine would strike the entire world. This, of course, came to pass. It was so bad that one day uh, of food would end up costing about a week's wages. In fact, their suffering was one of the reasons why Paul collected funds from other churches. Other famines kind of would come and intensify until eighty sixty six uh, through seventy, where the lack of food would drive the Jews to cannibalism during the siege of Jerusalem. Which I encourage you, even if you're not even prepared to research seventy AD, and show how brutal uh, the the starvation was inside the gates because the Romans essentially uh, blocked them as the Babylonians did hundreds of years before and caused starvation uh, for the Jews there, and they turned to cannibalism, and it was really brutal what was going on within the city gates. Pestilences were recorded on a massive scale in AD 40 and AD 65. Tacitus, the Roman historian, records that a plague swept through Rome, filling the houses with dead and streets with funerals. After Jerusalem was surrounded by the Roman armies. Uh, Pestilential diseases ravaged the city due to the famine and the amount of unburied dead bodies. Uh, prophecy number four: earthquakes. Perhaps no period in world history has been marked by the number of earthquakes recorded between recorded between the crucifixion and the descre- destruction of Jerusalem. Historians recorded earthquakes in Crete, Samaria, uh, S- Semna, uh, Mal- Malta, uh, Chios, Samos. La- Dog on that, you're distracting. Come on up here, buddy. Uh Her, her is uh, Colce, Rome, Pompeii, Ampa, and Judea. The Bible records earthquakes at Christ's death, and death, and resurrection, also in the book of Acts. There was even one in Jerusalem on the eve of the Roman siege. During that period, Jesus predicted earthquakes were rampant. Persecution of believers, and again, this one is self-stating. We all know that the church was severely persecuted during the first century. Uh, Paul used to be a persecutor of Christians and converted. Emperor Nero, as you all know, and was unparalleled in his cruelty to Christians. There had never been a point in history since the time of Jesus where more Christians were persecuted in the first century. Jesus was speaking to his contemporaries. Notice what he says. They will hand you over to synagogues. Do you feel in danger today of being delivered to Jewish authorities? Of course not. But in Christ's day, uh, they were signs in the sky. And this one is a bit uh, more difficult and more interesting to understand. This goes to the symbolic language of Revelation and the Bible itself. To the first century Jewish listeners, phrases like the sun will be darkened and the stars will fall from the sky, or figure speech from the Old Testament, Apoc- apocalyptic genre language referring to the destruction of a government or city. Similar language is used to describe what happened when the first temple was destroyed. There are multiple examples of cities receiving prophecies for, of their destruction using terms related to heavenly bodies, Ezekiel 32, 7, 8, Isaiah 34, 4 through 5, and... And so on. The sun and the stars did not literally go dark when Babylon and Egypt fell over. The prophets used figurative language, and so does Jesus when speaking of Jerusalem. In these passages, we find overwhelming proof that celestial imagery, signs in the sky, often foretold the destruction of a city or a nation. Jesus' listeners would have known he was speaking in Old Testament symbolism about the destruction of Jerusalem and the topic and discussion, not the end of the world. Despite this phrase being metaphorical according to Josephus, numerous signs and prodigies were seen before they before and during the Siege of Jerusalem. This is including a star resembling a sword, possibly Hades Comet. A bright light that shone on the temple for half an hour one night. The cow that was about to be sacrificed gave birth to a lamb. A heavy eastern gate of the eastern uh, gate of the inner court opened by itself. It took 20 men to close it, and the inner court, a strange and ominous voice, said, We are departing here. These were terrifying omens, but the most dramatic sign was the eternal sight of armed soldiers and chariots running among the clouds, quote-unquote, above the cities of Judea. The Son of Man coming on the clouds, another prophecy. And this is where a lot of dispensationalists uh, try and get uh, prejudiced with. The phrase coming on the clouds of heaven was an Old Testament symbol for God coming and judgment upon an ancient historical people and nations. And it says a bunch of verses. You can check it out yourself. The first century Jewish listeners would have understood this. Jesus was specifically quoting Daniel, though. And that quote was not one about judgment. Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Jesus did not come to Jerusalem in judgment, but he came to heaven with power and glory. Daniel foretold it, and the disciples witnessed it. Matthew twenty four, Jesus predicted that even the unbelieving Jews would come and see it, and they were mourn when they did. Some translations say, "Dang, uh, on you're gonna get comfortable." Uh, some translations say that all the prof, all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man. Though the proper translation has rendered all the tribes of the land. Uh, Matthew twenty four thirty ESV, the Greek word of phylite. Which translated as peoples or tribes means a subgroup of a nation characterized by a distinctive bloodline. The tribes mentioned are obviously the tribes of Israel and the land of Israel that will see Jesus coming in judgment against Jerusalem. The angels will gather the elect, and this goes into more symbolic language as well. Jesus sent out his angels after the destruction of Jerusalem to gather the elect. The meaning behind this often misunderstood due to a lack of knowledge to the original context and language. The blowing of a trumpet meant to the Jews that a royal decree was going out. Uh, it called to judgment, worship or repent. The word angels, angelios in Greek simply means messengers, regardless of whether their origin is heavily, heavenly or earthly. It is the context which determines whether these are heavenly creatures being spoken of. The word often just means preacher of the gospel like other places the word angelos gets translated into messenger not angel it says Matthew 11:10 Luke 7:24 and James 2:25 um the new testament uses the words gather or gathering in reference to the evangelism and unification of the Jews and Gentiles into the kingdom of God and i need i'm about to leave so i got to hurry and hit these last two and then record my next segment uh, later. Uh, the gospel preached in the whole world. The root a a kome, uh, it's Greek, so I can't really read it. Uh, used for the world in this passage actually means the world of the empire, inhabited or civilized world, not the world as in the global planet Earth. And that would be the Greek word cosmos. And um, this is the same Greek word used in Luke two one. And it came to pass in those days that there was Then there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. So this right here proves our whole point. That it was not the world that was facing judgment that Jesus was speaking of, but the world of the Jews and the world of the Roman Empire. That is what is happening. My dog is just cuddled behind my back so I can't sit back in my chair. So if I sound uncomfortable, that is why. In market sales, the gospel must be... First preached to all nations. This phrase is found all over the Bible, and it can mean all nations under the authority of the kingdom, or simply mean from all over. Daniel 4 1, Ezra 1 1 and several other verses support this. It is a generic, not scientifically literal reference. Scripture itself shows us this has been fulfilled. First Timothy three sixteen. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, he was vindicated by the Spirit, he was seen by the angels, he was preached among the nations, he was believed. On in the world was taken up in glory. First Timothy of three sixteen. Romans sixteen twenty five through twenty six says now him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation and the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed, and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the and. Uh, doggone! I need to click on this to find the rest of it. Uh, by the command of the internal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that now comes from faith. Again, that is Romans 16, 25 through 26. The apostle Paul used used the same word to confirm four times that the gospel had reached the whole world. And finally, number 10, Major prophecy of the Great Tribulation, the abomination that causes desolation Matthew 24, 15 through 16, Mark 13, 14, and Luke 21, uh, 20 through 21. The famous uh, abomination that causes desolation has been a source of mystery for many dispensational Christians, but it need not be. Matthew, since his primary audience were Jews, intentionally references Daniel, where it reads, uh, The people of the ruler who will come. Uh, who will come destroy the city and the sanctuary? The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and the desolations have been decreed. Matthew, Daniel, nine twenty-six. I don't know why I want to call Daniel Matthew today. While Matthew and Mark don't specify what the abomination is, Luke does. So what Matthew says is, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand and let those who are in Judea flew, flee to the mountains, Matthew 24, 15 through 16. Mark 13, 14 says, When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee through the mountain flee to the mountains. Mark 13, 14. So here's what Luke adds on to this and gives us the proper context of these verses. Luke 21, 20 through 21. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Luke spells it out for us. The desolation is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. The abomination is the Roman army. Jesus wants the abomination that causes the desolation is the Roman army that was surround Jerusalem. The exact words of Jesus came true. And in our third segment, of the full case for fulfilled eschatology or preterism. I'm not sure what title I will give. We will finish the great tribulation and we will move on to the mark of the beast and talk about the four blood moons a bit. And if there's anything else we need, we will get to that to prove to you that all biblical prophecy has been fulfilled and that Christ is truly come again. Enjoy the quick break. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of Common Sense Christianity. We have much more coming up. But be sure to subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and continue helping us grow as a ministry to continue to spread the gospel to all creation. We will continue the episode right now. All right, brothers and sisters, we are back with hopefully Praying to God, our last segment. It's been a long episode of me rambling and reading uh, a very complicated and in-depth topic that we have barely even scratched the surface for Uh, And I usually do this on purpose, but uh, it's very difficult to even get in depth, especially on a podcast on this episode. So I encourage you to do your research on your own. So continuing to the destruction of the Jerusalem, there is a verse I am going to read to you from Luke 19, 41 through 44. And Jesus says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, uh, even you had only known on this day, what would bring you peace but now it is hidden from your eyes the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment against you and encircle you and hem you on in on every side they will dash you to the ground you and your children within your walls they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of god's coming to you that comes from luke chapter 19 verses 41 through 44. This, of course, describes perfectly what happened in 70 AD to Jerusalem. Of course, the partial Preterist would most likely say that this already occurred, but there were some extra uh, aspects of Revelation, I believe, 20, 21, and 22 that have not been fulfilled, which is a fair argument, but I'll get to that in just a second, hopefully. So Jesus saw because he could see what was coming. The, he saw the famine, the horrors, the lesions. With their swords, he he saw all these horrific events. God's judgment on Jerusalem. This is what Jesus predicted. Now for the partial preterists out there, I would ask. Where is the dividing line between the prophecies? Because the partial preterists would agree with me here that the Great Tribulation has passed, that all these prophecies regarding Jerusalem and the weeping and the terror as as having passed. But unfortunately for the partial preterists, Jesus' second coming is supposed to happen right after these things happen, not thousands of years in the future. So that would be my conflict here, ladies and gentlemen, is that God, well, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, predicted... That all these things are going to occur within a a perfect lineage uh, amongst each other. And it's going to happen quickly. It's going to happen suddenly when you least expect it. Uh, And it applies directly to them then. Luke 23, 27. A large number... Of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that have never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Follow on us, and to the hills, cover us. Luke 23 27 through 30. What we call the tribulation didn't end with these signs. These were all signals of war that has come that would end the Jewish world. The temple age and we will read part two of this hopefully we can get through it quickly so the war of abomination in the year 8066 Floris, a roman pro uh, procre, pro procreator i'm saying that completely wrong pro procreator you know it sometimes on this podcast it seems like i'm a kindergartner learning how to read uh no i can read i have a very decent vocabulary to say the least, Uh, I just can't pronounce anything. I don't know what it is. So forgive me, God has not blessed me with the talent to read out loud to you, uh, brothers and sisters. So stay patient with me. Uh, Stole vast quantities of silver from the temple. The outraged Jewish masses rioted and wiped out the Roman garrison stationed in Jerusalem, housing a legion of 5,000 soldiers. This victory had a terrible consequence. Many Jews suddenly became convinced Uh, they can defeat rome and the zealots ranks uh grew exponentially jesus prophesied where there is a dead body there the eagles eagles will gather matthew 24 28 and luke 17 37. the eagles would indeed show up golden eagles would uh adore the, the military standards for roman legions and the more will be headed uh towards jerusalem In response to the Jewish revolt, the Romans mobilized four legions made of 60,000 heavily armed and highly professional troops. The first target was the Jewish state's most radicalized area, Galilee in the north, and an estimated 100,000 Jews were killed or sold into slavery. There was a man that claimed to be the Messiah named Simon Ben-Giora. Hopefully I'm saying that name correctly. Uh, And he gathered a large following in revolt and marched towards Jerusalem so he could be, quote, the king of the Jews, fulfilling Matthew 24, 23 through 24. And to read this to you, ladies and gentlemen, I, I just wanted to take the time to read this. It says, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear to perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So, continuing on with the article, many from Galilee fled to the city, thinking that we'd be safe under this violent Messiah. It wasn't long before the infighting began, the over, uh, began over the leadership of the city. Jerusalem was in the midst of a brutal civil war by the time the future Roman Emperor Titus offered the Jews a chance to surrender, the, and then they later refused to surrender. And this is a very important historical aspect, just purely historical, for why he ended up destroying Jerusalem. Uh, Three Roman legions dug a trench five miles long with 13 towers around the city in only three days, fulfilling Luke 19.43. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment against you and encircle you and hem you on every side. The day on which Titus encompassed Jerusalem was the feast of the Passover. He allowed pilgrims to enter, though Jesus warned that those in the country should not enter the city. Luke 21, 21. And let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. And let those in the country not enter the city. Ignoring him, multitudes came up from all the surrounding country and would soon be trapped inside the city walls. And this is where the crazy stuff begins to happen in expectation of the roman siege jerusalem's jews had stockpiled a supply of dry food that could have fed the city for many years but one of the warring zealot fractions burned the entire supply apparently hoping that destroying this security blanket would compel everyone to participate in the revolt as no supplies could now enter the walls the famine rapidly extended itself and increasing in horror devoured whole families The tops of houses and the recesses in the city were covered with the carcasses of women, children, and aged men. The young men appeared like spectators and fell down lifeless on the streets. The dead were so numerous to be interred, and many died while burying others. It is recorded that over 600,000 bodies were allowed to be taken outside the walls before the Romans, even entered the city. Starving, the Jews began to be compelled to eat their belts, sandals, grass, and even and manure of oxen it wouldn't be long before parents would turn to their defenseless children for food deuteronomy twenty-eight fifty-three. because of their suffering that your enemy will inflict on you during the siege you will eat the fruit of the womb and the flesh of the sons of daughters the lord your god has given you it is recorded that mothers killed roasted and ate their own children jesus knew that this would happen he was carrying his cross. He wept for the women and the children of Jerusalem, saying their deaths would be far worse than this. And it, says, it states Luke 23, 28 through 29. Many tried to escape the city, but they were all captured and crucified in crosses. 500 Jews were crucified a day. The Romans did this until every single tree surrounding the city had been cut down and there was no wood left. When it was discovered that some of the deserters had swallowed gold, the Romans ripped open two thousand of them in one night. Titus touched this by was touched by these calamities in person. Asked the Jews once more to surrender, they refused. And then they came. Jesus pros- prophesied, "If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive." But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Matthew 24, 22. Like all of other like. Uh, All of Christ's other predictions, this, of course, would come true. The biggest reason why Jerusalem fell so quickly was that the city was defended by people who spent half their time killing each other. There were massive infighting and civil war between the Jews over control of the city. This was a tragedy for for the people trapped within the walls were tens of thousands of ordinary people, families, pilgrims, old people, and children who wanted to surrender. But they were held hostage by the madmen who ruled the city. The Babylonian siege of Jerusalem of 587 BC lasted 18 months, but the Roman siege of 8070 was concluded in five. Jerusalem would have fallen one way or another, but its demise was swift because of the madness of its defenders. As Josephus observed, the sedition destroyed the city, and the Romans destroyed the sedition. After years of starvation, disease, and civil war, in the summer of 8070, the walls of Jerusalem were breached by the Romans. They first plundered and set fire to the houses. They filled the streets with drawn swords in their hands, murdering every Jew who they met without distinction. The bodies of the dead choked up all the alleys and narrow passes while their blood literally flowed down the channels of the city and streams. Fathers tearfully slaughtered their entire families in order to prevent them from receiving the worst treatment from the Romans. The whole land was all over, filled with fire and blood. The lakes, the seas turn red, the dead bodies floating everywhere, littering the shores and bloating in the sun, rotting and splitting apart. Ladies and gentlemen, how is this not the equivalence of what is described in Revelation and all the end time prophecies in the Bible? A hideous event. A hideous event. And perfectly describes God's wrath. Perfectly describes the final judgment. I'm reading all this not as an evidentiary tactic in in the main general point but i am reading all this to suggest to you brothers and sisters that this was a more significant event than anything that has occurred throughout human history with god's wrath reigning on jerusalem and this is the final judgment as proven by the scriptures and finally We get to the temple ablaze. The Roman soldier, urged as he declared by a divine impulse, regardless of the command of Titus, climbed on the shoulders of another and threw a flaming brand into the golden window of the temple, which instantly set the building on fire. Titus, not having planned to destroy the temple, made his way to the intersection, the holy of holies, the presence of God, brothers and sisters, the presence of God where everyone was supposed to be destroyed, who entered it with sin. God had left the world of the Jews. He left his place on earth because his new temple is in us today in our hearts. And thus, fulfilling the abomination of desolation described in Matthew 24, 15. Fulfilled right there. Struck with the magnificent sense of its archi- architecture and the beauty of its decorations, he renewed his efforts to stop the progress of the flames. He commanded his soldiers to exert all their strength and activity to stop the fire, and he appointed a centurion of guards to punish them. They ignored his command. But it was all in vain. The delirious rage of the soldiers knew no bounds. They would not stop their slaughter. One false prophet told the people that they should flee to the temple, in order to behold the signs of their deliverance. While they waited in anxious expectation of the promised miracle, the Romans increased the fire to the temple. Many jumped to their deaths, but the majority of them perished in the flames. Matthew 24, 24. Um, Since the golden roof had melted down in between the bricks of the temples, the Romans tore each and every one apart to retrieve it, thus fulfilling Christ's prophecy. Matthew 24 and Luke 19, 44. They will jash you to the ground. This is, when I'm reading from Luke, you and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. About 97,000 Jews were enslaved, some of them to work the mines in Egypt and others forced to build the Colosseum, which is the temple's gold with finance. Luke twenty-one twenty-four. They will fall, fall by the sword and be, be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Many Christians will one day be fed to the lions in that very Colosseum. The end. Once the temple was destroyed, the world of the Jews was finished. The end came on August 10th, eighty seventy. Christ's prophecies have now been completely fulfilled. At the end of this prophecy, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my my words, I should say, will never pass away. Luke, Matthew uh, 24, 35. But did heaven and earth pass away? Josephus described the temple as having an inaccessible heavenly part, the holy of holies, and an accessible earthly part, the holy place. This is a theme found all over the Hebrew scriptures, where the tabernacle or the temple are the intersections of heaven and earth. Jesus is saying the temple system will pass away, and sure enough, it did. This has been a greatly summarized account taken from Jewish historian Josephus, who witnessed the siege of Jerusalem firsthand. Given the full support of other Roman historical accounts, the account is universally agreed to be incredibly accurate. Being a devout Jew, there should be no suspicion that Josephus sought to align his historical account with the prophecies of Jesus. Therefore, it is remarkable Now the events that transpired match Christ's words perfectly. It is important to note that the history of the world does not record a parallel instance of unnatural barbarity ever occurring during the siege of any other place in any age or nation whatsoever. Over one million Jews died between C6 and 70 AD. Strikingly, history does not even record even one Christian dying in the siege of Jerusalem. History records a massive amount of Christians who sought sanctuary in Pella, a place beyond uh, the Jordan in the mountains in this country. They remembered the warnings of their Messiah and did what he told them to do flee to the mountains. It's described in Matthew 24. Back to the future. Which geographical location was the focus of the set prophecies? The answer must be Jerusalem, for Jesus plainly says, uh, so, on several occasions, Matthew 23, 37 through 38, 24 through 1, um, Mark 13, 2, Luke 19, 41 through 43, and several other verses. To which generation are these prophecies directed? The literal and most plausible answer is the generation to whom the prophecies were uttered, meaning the apostles' generation. To argue that Jesus had some other generation in mind is to imply that he misled his listeners. This generation will not pass away till all these things take place. This is Jesus Christ speaking to us, brothers and sisters. Listen to what the Lord has to say. He says when these things will happen. He says when the end is near. Not to us today. Christ did not have these words inspiredly written by the writers of the gospel and the writers in the New Testament for us today. He had them written for the generation then. And we must understand that all of these books in the New Testament are personal letters to specific churches within the first century, not letters as a generalized account to the Christian age today. Continuing on, to whom were these prophecies directed? Christ's words were for those who lived in Jerusalem and Judea. Let those in Judea flee to the mountains, Luke 21, 21. These weren't secret prophecies to be decoded by people thousands of years in the future. These people of Jerusalem heard Christ's warnings from his own people thousands of years. Oh, uh, from his own mouth. Luke 23, 36. I don't know why I skip back to lines uh, that I've already read randomly whenever I'm reading. It happens quite often. Um, Dispensational futurist American evangelicals try to pull you back into the past. So that the tribulation is in the future. But it isn't. It's in the past. Thank God. And this is the hope that it gives us. Surprisingly the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple are not often taught in churches. This is unsettling though. As the destruction of Jerusalem was the final removal of the old covenant. And the confirmation that the new covenant has finally arrived. All throughout Jesus' ministry he emphasized this coming destruction. His longest recorded prophetic word. What is covered in part one and part two of these articles actually came true all throughout the new testament the church was focused on the coming destruction of Jerusalem. it was an integral part of the good news jesus brought god was going to clean out his house and fully establish his kingdom jesus also claimed that these things will never be as bad as they were in 80 66 through 70. we can have a hopeful view of the future we can preach the good news of the gospel Jesus was prophesying the end of the temple, the end of the temple age, which would herald the arrival of the kingdom of God, which is established around the table instead of a temple. God's presence is now global, not just local. We don't have to wait for a great tribulation; it already happened. Um, and that is it. Uh, it says Jesus can just come, so this is a partial preterist perspective, but, uh. I I will stick with my original position. This article is very good uh, for proving my point here. Matthew 24, 21, it ends here. For then there will be great distress, unequal from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Brothers and sisters, this is hopeful news for us today. There's no great tribulation to worry about. I think that's the easiest thing to prove. Saying that Jesus already returned was is much harder of a claim to make. But I say it specifically because if all this has been fulfilled, these things were supposed to happen in direct line with each other. So either we have dispensationalism or we have full preterism. I think partial preterism is just holding out the hope that, oh, since all this has been fulfilled, well, let's hope Jesus is coming back in the far future. But that's not what it says. Um... I was going to talk about the beast of the earth, but we've done that. I believe it was Jesus already came back, part five. And so I will summarize really quickly. Full preterism. The idea that Jesus came back in 70 AD is, I believe, in full support of the scriptures. Now, it takes uh understanding of, of some basic understanding of some Greek words. I don't read Greek. But I'm gonna try and learn how to. I have an interlinear Bible. I or any literal translation, I encourage all of you guys to get. It will open your mind on it. Um, we go to C.S. Lewis quote, and it says that uh Jesus' words about when he was coming back, it's the most embarrassing verse of the Bible. Um, we can go to five quotes by ancient non-Christian historians talking about chariots and angels and armies on the clouds, we can ask the question, what are we even waiting for then? In Romans eight, 19 through 21, which I've read earlier in the episode, but I will read it again for you. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it and hope that the creation itself will be liberated, liberate, liberated, uh, if I learn how to read, uh, from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. This is a very beautiful thing. With the ending of the old covenant, we are free. Not free to just live our lives if you have accepted Christ, but we are free from the bondage of sin. We have been set free Through Christ's blood and eternal sacrifice, we have been set free by his grace and by his infinite love and mercy for us. This is what we have to take joy in. This is the gospel we ought to preach. The good news is not that God is about to put his wrath on us, for it already occurred. The good news is not that Jesus is going to come and only take up and rapture up uh, his elect. That was preordained from high, from the beginning of time. It's already happened. Our job today is, I believe, what is described perfectly in Matthew chapter 28. When, but the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mount where Jesus appointed them. And seeing him, they worshipped him. But they doubted. And coming up, Jesus talking with, uh, talked with them, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth was given to me. Go then, disciple all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things, whatever I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you all the days until the completion of the age. Amen. The age that Jesus was speaking to has been completed, but the new Christian age, which will never go off the face of the earth, has now arrived. The kingdom is here, ladies and gentlemen. That is the good news. We believe on Christ, and we will continue spreading His kingdom. That is the mission of Common Christianity. My attacks on uh, on the institutions of Christianity, uh, we're going to move on from that. Going into season five, we we will go back to it every once in a while, obviously. But we are focusing back on apologetics. We are focusing back on reaching young people. We are focusing back on getting people unto the Lord in the first place. I don't care if it's dispensationalism, partial preterism, full preterism. I don't care about any of that. I don't care if it's Calvinism. I don't care if it's being a Baptist. I don't care if it's being Catholic. I don't care where you are. I want you to come unto Christ because Christ, whether you believe he has come back or not, he has proven by the prophecy spoken of the old age prophets that he is the Messiah and that Christ has fulfilled it for us. And that we can have mercy, we can have love, we can have peace. We can feel the love and forgiveness of God Almighty through his blood and sacrifice. This is good news. This is a good news we must carry. This is a good news I will carry. And I dedicate my entire life to. And I dedicate this podcast moving forward to going towards that more and more and more. We are going back and talking about atheism. Atheism is still um being rampant within society. I want you guys to share the podcast When the atheism episodes come out so people can start listening and be like, hey, maybe this Christianity thing isn't as crazy. It's not as crazy as people want to make it. We're going to back it with evidence. We're going to back it with philosophical tactics. We'll go back to talking about other Christian institutions, not from my personal opinion, but from biblical facts. We'll go back to talking about Mormonism. We'll go back to talking about Catholicism. We'll go back to talking about Protestantism and not just focus on Calvinism and Jesus is already coming back. These are other topics, but the salvation that we have through Christ, through his blood and sacrifice is what we are going to focus back on. Guys, we have an exciting season five coming up for you. Be on the lookout for it. Season four was a great one, a controversial one, but guys, um, season five will be great. We still have a couple of, Episodes coming up in season four. Uh, but being on the lookout for season five, we need to make these more atheist episodes and prove that God not only exists, but that he has interfered within the laws of nature and within his creation to prove to us that he is the almighty, everlasting God. To sum up, our hope is in Christ, since he has come back and has fulfilled everything since the beasts have already came as uh, and i'll have all these articles that i read from the link in the description uh and i was going to talk about the four blood moons um i'll just put it in the link in the description you can you can read it yourself you can read through the website revelation uh revolution.org uh it's a very good resource breaks everything down much better than my uh mind can but all these things I will end with are unimportant. Um, well, I want to say unimportant, but I would say unimportant unimportant in the context of our, our salvation. It has nothing to do with it. Christ came and died for us. That is the only thing that matters. These are for someone who is seeking for truth. And sinking to get as close to truth as possible, and especially biblical truth, that is for them. This is for them. It's for me. These are the things that interest me and the puzzle me throughout my young life. But for those of us who cannot understand or do not have the time to understand, I encourage you to just look into Jesus Christ. Just pick up your New Testament. Read John. John, I think, is one of the most beautiful books in the Bible. John and Romans. Those are my two favorite books of the Bible. Romans, I, I just started realizing how beautiful it is of a book. I keep listening to Romans 6 and 7. When Paul is talking about, if we have been saved by grace, should we continue sinning? By no means, ladies and gentlemen. By no means. We have become new creatures through Christ Jesus. And though we will still sin, though we will still commit on atrocities, there there will be still people that we get angry at. There will still be people who we will have a hard time forgiving. We have become new creatures in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And I do this only in dedication to him. I question everything only in dedication to him, the truth, the gospel that has saved me and has changed my life, my heart forever and ever. Amen, ladies and gentlemen. Love Christ, always test all things, test everything I've said. You don't have to agree with me. You are still my brother and sister in the Lord. Email me your thoughts at Podcast at gmail.com. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Go check out our other episodes with similar content and go check out the episodes we've done on other different topics. Always keep an open mind, an open heart, and an open spirit. Love everybody as you would yourself and always pray and seek the Lord and you will find him. We will see you here Sunday. This is Common Sense Christianity.